Good morning. Glad you're here. Please pray with me. Oh, gracious and holy Father, we thank you for the blessed occasion of the gathering of your people. Oh, Father, we're your servants. But you've called us more than that. You've called us sons and daughters. Oh, how amazing is your grace. How wonderful is your love. We thank you. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to save us from our sins. He is Lord. We bow to you in his name this day. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2? St. Paul the Apostle's epistle to the saints at Philippi in chapter 2. I believe you'll find this to be a familiar passage of Scripture. Would you please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture? The great apostle writes, If there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of Holy Scripture, and you may be seated. We'll look back there to verses 5 through 7, where the great apostle exhorts, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself, or made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men." Well, did you see that there? Our Savior had a certain mindset. And Paul asserts that we should pursue the same mindset that Jesus had. Jesus, though highly exalted, He is God, humbled Himself, emptied Himself, restricted 
himself by incarnation and became a servant. And here, Paul's instruction, here from the New International Version, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Jesus, our Savior, said of himself, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 28, or 20, 28, and Mark 10, 45. So when Paul speaks of Christ's mindset as a servant, listen, his Greek, the term he chooses is doulos, which means slave, slave. The term that Matthew and Mark choose is dekineo, which is where we get our English word deacon, which means servant. So Jesus, Paul teaches, though God, though God took the mindset of a servant, even a bond slave, and came to save God's people. He came to minister, to serve, to be a deacon, even to lay down his own life as a ransom to save his people. Suffering servant. And here's the apostolic command to us, Christians, listen. Let this mind be in you. Let this same mind be in us. The mind, the mindset of a servant. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus. I'm here to minister. I'm here to serve. How can I help you? Have you ever had the experience of eating at a restaurant and having a really good server? I think that's what we're supposed to call them now, servers. We used to have waiters and waitresses who waited table or served at table, but maybe that's archaic now. But we have servers. And haven't you had the experience of having a really good server? I have. I know you've had the experience of having a bad server. A lousy waitress. A worthless waiter. Have you had to get up and go look for the water pitcher yourself because it didn't seem like anyone was around to wait to serve? You were neglected, forgotten. I've had several different jobs in my life. I have never been a waiter. But I think, I think that a big part of what makes a good server is a mindset. It's a certain mindset. It's an attitude. 
The good server has that look that just seems to say, how can I help you? Do you have what you need? Can I get anything else for you? That's a good server. And saints, listen, you who love your Savior, do you understand that in Jesus, God became a servant? And that this servant, Jesus, listen, this servant, Jesus of Nazareth, is Lord of all. Now this, friend, is amazing. The passage that we just read here in Philippians chapter 2 is sometimes referred to by theologians as a kenosis passage or a kenotic passage. The word kenosis, listen, is a transliteration from the Greek, kind of like the word baptize. I know you know this, but let me remind you. You know that translation involves taking the meaning of a text in one language and bringing that meaning as closely as possible into another language. That's translation. But transliteration is different. When we study baptism, we always note that baptize, baptism is a strange word, don't we? It's a strange word. In the history of English translations of the Bible, at least of the translation of the Bible into the authorized King James Version, it would have been politically incorrect. Maybe even lethally risky for the translators to have accurately translated the Greek baptizo because that word plainly means to immerse, to dip, to plunge under, to submerge. And proper believers of baptism into water was not the doctrine of the Church of England. So, so the translators came up with an idea that would allow them to continue their work without being killed, without risking their skins, and we call that novel idea transliteration. And the Old English word litter, L-I-T-E-R, is a precursor to our modern English word letter. And what happens is in, in transliteration is that the letters for a word in one language are associated with a similar letter in the target language and a translation is not even attempted. Do you understand? So the beta of baptizo becomes a B and the alpha becomes an A and the pi becomes a P and so forth and you end up with a new word in the target language, in this case, the English word baptize. And what does it mean? What does this new word that no one's ever heard mean? What does it mean? Well, I've told you this before, but theologians are often like Humpty Dumpty. 
And you remember what Humpty told Alice in Wonderland? He said, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean. Nothing more and nothing less. Do you remember that? So, historically, at least partly because of reticent translators, theologians have made the word baptize mean whatever they want it to mean. And that's a little rabbit trail to remind you about transliteration. Because I mentioned to you that in this passage we read in Philippians chapter 2, it's often referred to as a canonic or kenosis passage. And the English word kenosis is a transliteration of the Greek kenosis. And had that word been actually translated, it would have been empty. Empty. As a theological term, kenosis means the self-emptying of one's own will to become entirely receptive of the divine will. Jesus made himself of no reputation. Jesus emptied himself. Where the King James Version says in verse 7 that Christ made himself of no reputation, the New American Standard and the Net Bible translated, he emptied himself. Echinosis. So this is a kenosis passage, a self-emptying passage. And if you look back, if you look back at the passage, do you see that Paul's desire for the Philippian saints to have this Christian mind is to a specific end? And the end is there in verses 10 and 11. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, follow Paul's reasoning here. And and this is my paraphrase. Listen. He's saying to these Christians, I want you to think like Jesus, who was the very image of God. But he emptied himself. He poured himself out. He became a nothing, even a servant, a slave. He obeyed God fully, even unto death. And I want you to have that same kind of mind. A mind focused on obedience to God. And, and I want you to confess. I want everybody to confess that Jesus is Lord. And that, that confession will glorify God, the Father. I hope you see here that the end, the end of Paul's desire for the Philippians is that they will confess this truth. Jesus is Lord. And the practical way, listen, the practical way that they'll get there 
to this true confession is by kenosis, the same way that Jesus did. They'll have to take the same mindset that Jesus took, the servant mindset. They'll have to deny themselves. They'll have to empty themselves and follow Jesus. They'll have to have a mind that thinks like his mind. And when they do that, they will confess in truth, Jesus is Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, I think you know, that confession, Jesus is Lord, is one of the oldest confessions of the Christian church. And though it's very brief, it's a confession of faith in miniature. Jesus is Lord. And for millennia now, disciples of Jesus have affirmed again and again and again, Jesus is Lord. Writing to the saints at Corinth, Paul affirmed, listen, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed. And no man can say that Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Now, I believe that to confess Jesus is Lord in truth is to confess saving faith. In Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying if you can say that and believe it, that's the truth. Paul says, you're saved. You see, beloved, (laughs) Lordship is inseparably linked to the name of Jesus. He is the Lord Jesus. Lordship was at the very heart of Jesus' redemptive work on the cross. Paul makes that very clear in Romans 14, verses 8 and 9, when he writes, Listen, whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end hath Christ died and rose and revived, that He might be Lord of both the living and the dead. Why did Christ die? Well, many reasons. One, Lordship. According to the Apostle, the confession of Jesus Christ as Lord is salvific. Writing to the Romans, he says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth, the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. How do I become a Christian? Confess that Jesus of Nazareth is Lord. Saints, listen, we must confess that Jesus is Lord. And church, listen, church, 
When we confess that Jesus is Lord, we need to understand what it is that we're saying. What does that mean? You see, if we don't understand what we're saying, we could be playing just like Humpty, Dumpty, and making our words mean whatever we want them to mean. I don't want to play. But beloved, listen, if words have meaning, and I believe they do, then this phrase, Jesus is Lord, means something. It means something. <coughs> and if we are to confess it in truth, we must know what it means. And we must agree with what it means. When the New Covenant Scriptures proclaim Jesus as Lord, the Greek word that's been translated Lord is kurios. Kurios. And it means he to whom a person or thing belongs, about which he has the power of deciding. It means master, the possessor and disposer of a thing. It means owner, the one who has control of a person. It means in the state, the sovereign prince, the chief, the Roman emperor. Curious. It's a title of honor, expressive of respect and reverence with which certain servants greet their master. <coughs> Curios, Lord, is from the Greek root kuros, which means supremacy. Supremacy. Listen, it means boss. It means absolute ruler. It means king. Jesus is boss. Jesus is absolute ruler. Jesus is king. No king but Christ. Please turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, and look there to verses 5 through 7. The Bible says, The Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, These have turned the world upside down, and are come hither also, whom Jason has received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, one Jesus. Acts 17, verses 5 through 7. Now, beloved, listen. Hear a question. Here a question. Was this a false accusation to try to get Jason in trouble? Or were the early Christians proclaiming another Lord besides Caesar? Another king besides Caesar? King Jesus. Well, the Romans were pagans. 
And their institutions and practices were corrupt. They were built on lies, not on truth. And their culture was a culture of death. And into this culture of death came the apostles of Jesus Christ with the word of truth, proclaiming the kingdom of God, a culture of life. And the truth of God that was preached by the apostles clashed violently with the lies at the foundation of pagan culture. The preaching of the cross, listen, the preaching of the cross had such a great effect in the Roman Empire that the enemies of the gospel actually accused the disciples of turning the world upside down. Acts 17, 6. What are these guys doing? You can't let this go on. Don't you see what's happening here? And they say that the disciples all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Acts 17, verse 7. They're turning the world upside down. They're disobeying Caesar. Now, does this mean that the Christians of the first century were not obedient to the civil laws of the Roman Empire? No. No, it doesn't. Insofar as those laws, listen, insofar as those laws did not violate the law of God, the early Christians were law-abiding citizens in submission to their rulers. And in their epistles, the apostles instruct them and us so to be. Hear Paul, let every soul be subject to the higher powers. For there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Romans 13, 1. And here Peter, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. 1 Peter 2, 17. Now, we noted that the Romans were pagans, and they had a pagan worldview But though their worldview was pagan, it was highly ordered and refined. They were polytheists, not idiots. In their pagan worldview, they viewed things hierarchically. And in the Roman mind, things were ranked and ordered hierarchically. And at the bottom of the scale was dirt. And at the top of the scale was Lord. In the Roman mind, the emperor was the top of the scale. He was Lord. He was czar. C-Z-A-R. T-S-A-R. Caesar. Kaiser. King. The top of the scale. And between the Lord and the dirt were all other living things. Animals, slaves, free men, noblemen, men of rank. All the way up to Kaiser, to Caesar. Lord, curios. 
Because the Roman Empire stretched all the way from Europe to the Middle East and across the northern coast of Africa, it was made up of many provinces with many local religions. And scholars often refer to these as mystery religions that were found in many parts of the Roman Empire. And all those local religions had their own codes of conduct and their own sacred scriptures, their own patterns of worship and forms of sacrifice and sacred rites and priesthoods and so forth. (laughs) And because the pragmatic Romans observed that these local religions often tended to keep people pacified, the Romans usually left them alone as much as they could. Imperial Rome required tribute. Your taxes must be paid. Your tribute. And Imperial Rome required everyone to confess Caesar is Lord. If your nation, your village, your province was conquered by Rome, and you'd say those words, and you'd pay your taxes, and you'd keep your head down, and your nose clean, often you could just do just fine. You could do just fine. Just pay your taxes and salute Caesar. You could just affirm Caesar as the sovereign, as the absolute ruler, and then go about your business and practice whatever religion you want. We don't really care as long as the money's coming in. And you see, by affirming that Caesar was Lord, the Romans had castrated the other gods anyway. They had emasculated them. Don't you see? So they didn't really care about these little demigods across the empire as long as Caesar was sovereign and as long as the taxes are paid on time. And for most people in the empire, listen, for most people in the empire, this just wasn't a big problem. It wasn't a big problem. But for the Christians, it was a very, very big problem. And saints, don't you see, the preaching of the apostles and the teaching of Jesus put the early church on a collision course with Rome. It's just unavoidable. It's got to happen. You see, this is always the rub. And yes, Edward, are you saying Christianity is inherently political? Absolutely. Please understand that. Well, we don't want to get political. Christianity is inherently political. It's all about who's got the power. It's all about who is the Lord. It's always the rub. The message of Christ's absolute lordship over all things, things in heaven and things on earth, was rightly perceived by the Roman civil authorities as having very strong political implications. They got it. Can't you see? Listen, 
If Jesus is Lord of all, then Jesus is Caesar's Lord too. And if he's Caesar's Lord, then Caesar is his subject, his servant. And if he is Caesar's Lord, then Caesar is accountable to him. And if Caesar is accountable to him, then Caesar better be ruling as Christ's minister for Christ's interests. Now, these implications were revolting to Rome, and they could not allow a challenge to their authority from any source. You see, in the pagan worldview, the Romans were steeped in the lie of the divinity of the state. Mother Rome. The rulers were often considered gods and were worshipped by the people. Your lordship. What? The Caesars had absolute power and they didn't answer to anybody. I'm not talking about these little Windsor kings. I'm talking about an oriental potentate, a real Caesar. You know what I do? Whatever I want. But don't you see? The word of God about Christ's deity and his absolute authority flies in the face of this lie about the divinity and the sovereignty of the state. The word of God about Christ established that there was indeed another king. A king to whom even Caesar must bow. A king, a lord, a sovereign. And what's his name? Jesus. Like I said, friends, this is the rub. You see, listen, Jesus is Lord. And listen, he won't be anything but Lord. Christ our Savior will be king or he will be nothing. He claims absolute exclusivity in the Lord department. He says, no man can serve two masters. It's me or death. And the early Christians would not say Caesar is Lord. Listen, they just wouldn't do it. How could they say Caesar is Lord when their faith taught them Jesus is Lord? They could not and they would not deny the Lord Jesus. And that, listen, that, among other things, is why during the days of persecution, Christians were slaughtered, murdered by the thousands, crucified, burned at the stake, run through with spears and with swords, and thrown to wild animals. That's why. That's why. Oh, it wasn't political. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. 
That was the great dividing line that Christians wouldn't cross. We can't say that. We won't say that. A writer that I read said that if if you had stood up in a public gathering in the first century and shouted, Jesus is God, no one would have been too upset. But if you shouted, Jesus is Lord, kurios, a riot probably would have broken out. Now, saints, please listen. You need to know this. Listen. Rome didn't persecute Christians because they believed in the deity of Christ or that Jesus was the promised Messiah of the Jews or that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Rome didn't kill Christians because they said Jesus is the only way of salvation. Rome didn't care. Those were all religious beliefs that didn't threaten the state. But, but when Christians said, Jesus is kurios, Jesus is Lord, and we will have no other, well, that was a direct attack on Caesar worship, and many, many Christians were killed. It was the preaching of Christ's lordship over all things, including the state, that led to the persecution of the church by Rome. The church wasn't persecuted by Rome for preaching Christ as savior, as prophet, as priest. The church was persecuted for preaching Jesus Christ as Lord. The church was persecuted for teaching there is another king, Jesus. And beloved, listen. The faithful preaching of Christ's sovereignty over all things, including the state, has always been considered seditious by humanistic governments. Because it exposes the absolute lie of their claims to sovereignty. You think you're in charge here? Yeah, we do. You're not. Jesus is king. Beloved brothers and sisters, hear me please. I fear lest some of us have been deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. Listen. Jesus is Lord. He is sovereign and absolute ruler. He is Lord. He is the only Lord. His claim is exclusive. Now stay with me, please. I'm going to get bold. And you'll understand why some of our Baptists and Anabaptist forefathers were hated and hunted and persecuted and killed. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is our primary authority. He is the head of His church. And if you and I believe what we say we believe, that we've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's own dear Son, and if we believe what we say we believe, 
that we live in this present fallen world as strangers and pilgrims and our citizenship is in another kingdom, then listen, all allegiances, all allegiances in this present fallen world are secondary, purely secondary. That means behind primary. I say for us, listen, allegiance, any allegiance that we may have to any nation or government or union in this present fallen world, any allegiance in this world must, Christian, must be a secondary allegiance. And brothers and sisters, I remind you, The Christian's submission to secondary authority is always a secondary duty. But obedience to our Lord is a primary duty. I'm going to say that again. Listen. Our submission to secondary authorities is a secondary duty. But our submission to our primary authority, our obedience to our Lord, that's first. And the teaching of the Holy Apostles is that whenever the direction of a secondary authority conflicts with the direction of a primary authority, obedience to the primary authority is requisite. It's required. I say this is the apostolic teaching. Peter and the other apostles were brought before the wicked Jewish council, and the high priest said to them, Did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in his name? That's Jesus' name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Acts 5, 28 and 29. Whenever the direction of a secondary authority conflicts with the direction of a primary authority, obedience to the primary authority is requisite. Now listen, this is uncomfortable and can make Christianity seem threatening or even edgy to secondary authorities. You see, we've got another king. But so be it. If we're edgy, so be it. It should make them uncomfortable. And we Christians must live with this tension. Listen, our forefathers in Rome died for it. And beloved, listen, if we can't run with the footman, how will we contend with the horses? Beloved, the cry of the church in our day should be, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Only Jesus is Lord. No king but Christ. And brothers and sisters, listen, if it seems like I'm attacking the government... 
I want you to understand I'm not. I'm not. What I am doing is attacking a false view that you or I might have of government. I'm not attacking the government. But I want to tear down a false view that you or I might have of it. And those of you who know me know I surely don't believe in a Christian America. If there is a Sodom on earth today, it's in this country. And my hope is not in this nation. And yours shouldn't be either. Please hear me. Yours should not be either. Happy Memorial Day. I'd like to say I'm over it, but that wouldn't be entirely true. I don't need to attack America. And listen, I'm not afraid that God will judge America. He already has. He already has. That's not my business. But saints, listen. Hear me. I'm not attacking America, but I do want to attack any confidence that you or I might put in America. Because I believe that for many Americans in our day, the American government has become a great idol. You see, if I lose my job, I'll draw unemployment and the government will take care of me. And if the rains fail and my crops don't yield, well, the government insurance program will take care of me. And if I'm sick and old, the government's Medicare, it'll take care of me. And if I'm sick and young, then the government's Medicaid program will take care of me. And the government will school my children, and it'll guarantee my bank account, and it'll build roads for me to drive on wherever I need to go. And if I can't find a job anywhere, they'll just take some money from somebody else and give it to me. Or they'll pay me to go to some faraway land and do violence to someone who doesn't even speak my language. And they'll pay me for it. They'll take care of me. Brothers and sisters, these are some tough economic times. And if you're out of work and you need money and you're able to draw unemployment, I sure hope you're doing it. But I urge you with everything in me to not put your confidence in human government. Not in the parish. Not in the county. Not in the state. Not in the feds. Hope in God. Jesus is Lord. The Bible teaches that it's the Lord that makes the rain to fall and the sun to shine. The Bible teaches that it's the Lord that giveth thee the power to get wealth. The Bible teaches that it's the Lord who healeth all thy diseases. Do you see how human government could be an idol? A false Lord? Saints, only Jesus is Lord. Oh, beloved, hope in God. 
And listen, the corrective, the corrective for hoping and trusting in anything but the Lord is to remember to let the mind of Christ be in us and to place our trust in the Lord. Place your trust in the Lord. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we, we will remember the name of the Lord, our God. Psalm 20, verse 7. I sing my Savior's wondrous death. He conquered when he fell. Tis finished was his dying breath and shook the gates of hell. Tis finished, our Emmanuel cries. The dreadful work is done. Hence shall his sovereign throne arise. His kingdom has begun. His cross a sure foundation laid for glory and renown when through the regions of the dead he passed to reach the crown. Exalted at his Father's side sits our victorious Lord. To heaven and hell his hands divide the vengeance or reward. The saints from his propitious eye await their several crowns and all the sons of darkness fly the terror of his frowns. Please stand with me for prayer. I hope you have a good Memorial Day holiday this weekend. But I want to remind you, only Jesus is Lord. So wave your flag, cook your hot dogs and your hamburgers, and remember... Jesus is Lord. We have a King. Let's pray. Sovereign God, Thy cause, not my own, engages my heart. And I appeal to Thee with greatest freedom to set up Thy kingdom in every place where Satan reigns. Glorify Thyself, and I shall rejoice. For to bring honor to Thy name is my desire. I adore Thee that Thou art God and long that others should know it, should feel it, and should rejoice in it. Oh, that all men might love and praise Thee, that Thou mightest have all glory from the intelligent world. Oh, let sinners be brought to Thee for Thy dear name. To the eye of reason, everything respecting the conversion of others is as dark as midnight, but Thou canst accomplish great things. The cause is thine, and it is to thy glory that men should be saved. O Lord, use me as thou wilt. Do with me what thou wilt, but oh, promote thy cause. Let thy kingdom come. Let thy blessed interest be advanced in this world. Oh, do bring in great numbers to Jesus. Let me see that glorious day and give me to grasp for multitudes of souls. Let me be willing to die to that end. And while I live, let me labor for Thee to the utmost of my strength, spending my time profitably in this work, both in health and in weakness. 
O Lord, it is thy cause and thy kingdom I long for, not mine own. Please answer thou my request. In Jesus' name, amen.